We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. Our guest this morning, Dr. Fatima Morrell of the Buffalo Public School System, a long title, Associate Superintendent of Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Initiatives for Buffalo Public Schools and also named uh, by Time Magazine as one of the educated uh, education innovators of 2022. I'm Jay Moran, along with Thomas O'Neill White. Uh, good morning, all. Dr. Morrell, unpacking white supremacy... What does that mean, and how does Buffalo Public Schools help in that way? Uh, good morning, and um, thank you for that question. Um, when we talk about unpacking white supremacy, we know that um, that's a, a, a scary topic for a lot of people. Like, what does that mean? But until this racist massacre that, a ha that happened uh, on May, for May 14th, um, Many people didn't even understand that there are networks of white supremacist groups that are uh, engaging with our young people online. They are enticing them. Um, they are giving them false bravado and attempting them to do things that are horrendous in the name of whiteness and in the name of uh, replacement theory, for example, that, um, you know, blacks and Jews and Latinx peoples will replace us uh, if we don't, you know, exterminate them. I mean, it's horrible. And these networks and these groups, um, they're large and wide, but a lot of us don't want to talk about uh, those groups because they are very also intimidating and they're scary, right? But they are getting our kids uh, on on the networks, on the internet, through uh, different kinds of technological means. And if they find students who may be vulnerable, who may be feeling left out and left alone or not appreciated by family, uh, young people, they, they will uh, bring them in and actually, uh, um, you know, um, make them, you know, uh, grow, grow, groom them to be uh, these here uh, lone wolves that'll go and do something horrendous. But uh, on a more subtle uh, scale, when we talk about racism, um, extreme racism that leads to uh, white supremacist notions of superiority, um, it's those uh, subliminal kinds of uh, things that we see and that our kids are, you know, picking up on. Um, for example, when we, uh, 
you know, we never have a, you know, a black or brown uh, valedictorian, for example, in our schools, or uh, we never talk about the history and culture, the hard truths of history and culture of, of, of people of color. Um, it's as you know, it's kind of marginalized uh, in our textbooks or even in our pedagogy. And so those kinds of inklings of racism or the subliminal messages that are sent that, you know, certain groups of people or certain cultures are not valued, are not important, lead to larger and more uh, systemic types of uh, racism and um, racialized thinking that leads our kids to go out there and explore for themselves uh, what, you know, what they think they should know about people that who don't look like them. And that's when we get into dangerous territories of white supremacy. And, and of course, um, you know, everything that goes along with that, uh, including, um, you know, everything that goes along with being a white supremacist, uh, which includes which includes the full marginalization of people of color. And, and Dr. Morell, I mean, not to make this all because we have a full hour, lots of things to cover here. But uh, I think it's worthwhile to note on a personal level, you know, this great accolade that you got from Time magazine. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. Congratulations to you on that. But Thank at the same you. time, with notoriety, you have felt the brunt of some of these white supremacists and their words and their approaches to things. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, um, there has been tremendous uh, hate mail and uh, communications to me and um, to my office. Uh, horrendous things uh, stated about uh, black people and particularly. Um, and even even today, I mean, there was a, a whole full year of, of those uh, hate mail, uh, you know, Fox News attacking Buffalo Public Schools and me personally um, led to a tremendous amount of, of um, just consternation and, um, you know, con- you know, really fear around what what is happening here? Why do these people feel that they can, you know, send me messages calling me monkeys and my people and just it's it 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 has been a challenge. But I a lot of that has subsided, uh, and you know things were were moving along. But I can see where the you know I don't understand all the angst. But when you think about white supremacy, it really isn't for us to understand the anger. You just know it's there. Like what we saw on January sixth at the Capitol building, you saw that anger. You saw that they wanted to kill. Uh, Mike Pence, even they they just wanted to destroy anyone who had an idea, an idea or a thought that varied from their own. And, and it was just there was no reason or rationale. And it was just attack and destroy. That's what I saw. And that's kind of what I felt in those hate mails uh, over the last year that uh, has, thank you, subsided quite substantially. Um, but, it, you know, we cannot allow these kind of uh, misinformed, malicious thinkers to get their hands on our students. Yeah, let's move into just a little bit then about the curriculum that uh, you have and your team have worked on developing in the Buffalo Public Schools. And and I love one of the quotes that I saw here from you. And it it, it talks about um, that students weren't getting information about who they are, their greatness. 
their greatness. Yes. Um, let's talk about a little bit about how that curriculum is now working to show that. Absolutely. So um, with the emancipation curriculum, it really is a liberating curriculum. And so you may ask me, well, liberating from what? Um, really unlocking the cognitive abilities of our kids, unlocking true history for them so that they can think freely and think for themselves and make decisions about life in the world for themselves. But first, they have to be given accurate information. We can't partially educate our children and then ask them to make informed decisions about who they are or to advocate for their own justice and their own liberation if they don't even know that there's a struggle going on and where does that struggle begin so when we talk about the emancipation curriculum we want to start from the origins of america and as hard as that truth is uh, we have to unpack that so that they can see that through all of the trials the triumphs the jim crow segregation the lynchings the mobs the riots the massacres we still stand as a strong people and we still stand as a people who have contributed infinitely to American history, society, and to the world. Our first mathematical geniuses, Imhotep, right? Our first, where does math originate? Why don't kids know that? If they know, hey, genetically I'm prone to doing math because actually the people of Kemet, my people, created math. And created science. So I should be able to do very well at that. But when kids don't understand their own greatness or their lineage of historical and intellectual brilliance, they can't connect to that. And then they're not, you know, and that that makes them, um, you know, not know who they are. And then they can't academically achieve the way that they would achieve if they are exposed to who they truly are as a people. And that's all children. And we do this wonderfully for white children. They're included in all the books, the stories, the histories are there. They feel good about themselves. They can see themselves mirrored in that curriculum. And that's wonderful. But what we have to do is we have to do that same thing for our um children of color, historically marginalized communities of color. And we know right now that the research shows us that we, in American books and textbooks, we show animals are represented twice as much as black people in textbooks, in American and children's books and in, 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 um, in texts. And so even um, our indigenous people are only represented by 1%. Our Latinx people are only represented by about five or six percent. But then you have animals represented uh, at 27 percent. Black people represented at 10 percent. So it's our job to make sure that our students can see themselves in that curriculum, have literature where they are the protagonists of the story and they're doing great things and they're they're they and they're loving themselves like love who you are because there are so many signals and misinformation that sends a message that you're not great that you're not as good as that you are less than so it's really important for us as educators to show no we're all part of the human fabric we all have something great to contribute and to offer and that's part of my role and that's part of the emancipation curriculum to ensure that kids can see themselves wonderfully as they are, all children in the curriculum. And what are kids in the district reading or what are they learning that they weren't five to ten years ago? 
Well, one of the big things that we did implement um, that was, uh, I think, really uh, changing uh, a big changer game changer for us was the uh, 1619 project um, because not only did kids not know the origins of 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 uh, the legacy of enslavement but a lot of us adults also did not know so mm-hmm. we had to so in order to best train our children we must first understand who they are not just present day but also historically and also where they going in the future because if we have low expectations they will achieve low if you set that bar low so what our young people what we what we wanted to do was show them right because we talk about the mayflower flower but no one ever talks about the white lion who was on the white lion some 20 odd right when you read that's in the the, the 1619 project some 20 odd black people who settled at Port Comfort Virginia right in 1619 and then someone decided chattel slavery will begin. But those 20-some-odd uh, Africans who, who came here and their descendants, it was never a complacent place for them to be enslaved. There was a struggle from the beginning. There were uprisings, right? So we need to let our kids know we, we were never happy enslaved people. We were just outgunned, outmanned, and of course we, we just, we just did not know how to hate people. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Like I think it's hard. It was. And, and if I may, hasn't that been on on display in the East Side community since May Fourteenth? Just what you said there yes. uh, about hate. It, we're. I mean, I'm not seeing that at all. No, no one in our community in the black community. Even after this white massacres attack on our community, even after you've never heard, a, I haven't heard a single person of color or even a white person say, I'm angry at white people. Um, I don't, I blame all, the entire white race for this. It's never happened because it's not true and it's not who we are. And this was a young man who was terribly misguided by white supremacist groups who wrote a 180-page manifesto based upon the guidance he received from the wrong place. So when I talk about we have to educate all our children, especially our white children, that's what I'm talking about. So that they don't go out there on the websites and try and educate themselves about black people from, uh, you know, the Proud Boys or, you know, uh, this other group uh, that I can't remember right now. That's a New York state based group. Right. So uh, we have to take hold of our all of our children so that they are not educated that way. But. So we empowered our children through the 1619 Project and other curriculum efforts to know who they are, know there was always a struggle and never complacent, never happy, docile working slaves as we are portrayed in so many books. But we're always fighting and always contributing, right? So everything that almost every institution that you see in America has been touched by the hands of African-Americans. When I took about 90 kids to the Capitol building two years before the January 6th, uh, the January 6th, uh, racist attack on our country um i the the children saw the bust of rosa parks and they saw the bust of they saw frederick Douglass and things like that and then um i told them i said you've been to the white house you've been to the capitol building look look at these places and they said yeah they're beautiful they're absolutely wonderful and i said you know whose hands 
toiled to build these edifices? And they said, who? I said, black people, your people, your ancestors. And they were, oh, my God, for real? You know, and then I took them to a little site where they showed the bricks, a little side part they have over in the Capitol building where they have the bricks and they show, you know, the enslaved, they give the contribution to the slave Africa. I say, hey, we have a footnote here. Look at it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the kind of learning and achievement that we have to empower our kids with to emancipate their minds and liberate them to understand their own abilities to be great, to be academically excellent, and to advocate for justice for themselves in their community. Now, using the 1619 Project and, you know, just putting putting in this curriculum, has been, has that been a heavy lift for you? Has it been a heavy lift for the teachers putting this all together? Well, I have a great team, okay? <laughs> and so none of us do it alone, and, and I'm uh, keenly aware of that. So my time recognition also belongs to the office of CLRI, the directors and the supervisors, uh, the parents who hold me, uh, who, who, who have my back, <laughs> who, <laughs> who watch out for me and who look out and make sure that this work continues in our district. That, that recognition belongs to them. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it has been a heavy lift. Um, it's it's not easy. First of all, um, timing and stars aligning. Really, I believe in that because when we began writing the emancipation curriculum, we had white teachers who were really incensed by the George Floyd issue. And they came forward and said, we, we got to do something, Dr. Morrell. And on the steps of City, City Hall that summer, we had 700 or so teachers, teachers came out and protested and said Black Lives Matter. And they got on their knees and they took a knee. I have pictures. And it was the most amazing experience of human connection that I had ever, like, I had ever had up until that point, right? I mean, it was like, they cared so much. And remember, our teachers are 80% white. So when they came back to the table, they wanted to write a curriculum that told the truth. That's all that it really, really, truly is when you think of the emancipation curriculum. It's just that part of the story that's untold. And it was the teachers, along with the Office of CLRI, uh, on those curriculum committee, about 40 teachers that began the work, began the research, going out, looking at what other districts were doing, pulling resources that were credible, getting in contact with the Library of Congress so we had credible resources, using uh, the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center, using the work of the New Jersey Amistad curriculum that had been vetted highly by the New Jersey Department of Education, looking at the work of the um, um, Zen Education Project, looking at the Black Lives Matter guiding principles and the work out of Seattle schools. And we brought all that to the table and we said, Let's put this together for our kids. Let's save lives. Let's put this together. And, 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 and that's what we and that's what we do, because this emancipation curriculum, it also dismantles the school to prison pipeline, because when you think about the, that, I, you know, I I'm actually you know, there's more to me than Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Right. Um, I actually, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. civilization, the cradle of civilization is in Africa. And so, you know, this a lot of this began with me and I'm supposed to be great because those people were great and they fought and died for me to do things like vote and go to school with white children and go to school with all children and things and things of that nature. And so 
this is really a I look at it more as a calling of saving lives than just a curriculum. Because now I can see myself, I can connect to something positive in the work that I'm reading. I'm opening up a book, I'm five or six years old, and I'm reading about my hair is beautiful, you know, as a five or six year old, instead of being, you know, told something opposite that we see quite frequently in the media and on the news, the outlets. So it's a life change. It's a life saving mechanism, the emancipation curriculum. And we're going to continue to push equity for all with that curriculum. We're going to take a time out. We've got a lot to talk about this morning on Buffalo. What's next? Uh, Dr. Fatima Morell from Buffalo Thank Public you. Schools with us. We'll take a break. Come Thank back with you. more here on WBFO. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year. Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Daredevils of Niagara Falls. I think part of the lure of Niagara was that it was understood to be a very dangerous place. A daredevil is somebody who goes out and does a daring thing. Maybe they make it, maybe they don't. Daredevils of Niagara Falls, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we're back on Buffalo What's Next uh, with us, the Associate Superintendent of Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Initiatives for Buffalo Public Schools, Dr. Fatima Morrell, Jay Moran, along with Thomas O'Neill White. And, you know, we've touched uh, upon some of the some of the uh, principles, I guess, about the emancipation curriculum. But uh, I heard you mention also in a previous interview about a book. And I like to mention books on this program because... I always have this picture of, uh, of WBFO and NPR listeners mm-hmm. hearing about books and then marching over to the library and mm-hmm. a book called The Spider Weaver. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about what that book might teach a, a young student. And so, well, I love this book. Um, can't remember the author right now, but it, it really, uh, it talks about the... Uh, the greatness of, of of the Ghanaian culture, right? And so when we think about Ghana um, and we think about West Africa, we know that many of our ancestors may have come from Ghana. And, um, and, and we know that they did. And this particular piece really talks about the kente cloth, cloth fabric. So when you see the vibrant and rich colors that the... Uh, uh, kente cloth the African ancestors wore uh, and still wear our, our present Ghanaian uh, brothers and sisters and even right here in America we mm-hmm. still wear uh, Ghanaian fabrics all, uh, the all the time sometimes we don't know that those are royalty fabrics and so in the Ghanaian culture if you wore a certain fabric particularly kente and that particular uh, uh, arrangement of the fabric, the the the, the materials, um, let's see, the colors and all of that represent certain um, um, 
royal families and lineage in the in the in the Ghanaian culture. So not everyone initially could just wear whatever any can can take. They can wear kente cloth, but they couldn't wear that that vibrant orange and yellow and green. It wasn't for everyone. It was for the royals and for traditional, you know, celebrations and things of that nature. Celebrations around uh uh, births and 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 um, marriages and even funerals and so um, it was really connecting our young people with uh, the African culture, but also connecting their minds to you know you come from greatness, you come from royalty, and connecting all children to the concept that all of us are together through this through a woven fabric of what we call life, and all of us are great. And white children can see. Oh, I know a lot about my culture, but black black kids they 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 actually have descendants that came from Africa. And look at this beautiful culture. So the Spider Weaver story is just a great uh, story about uh, African ancestors ancestry and uplift, and it's a it's an amazing story. Hey, uh, we had uh, on last week uh, Vicky Math, who was one of the present uh, presenters at the uh, mm-hmm. Teaching Black History mm-hmm. conference that UB held, and she talked about. Also, that culture out of Ghana as well. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe expand on it just a little bit more as well, because I mean, she was she got into that a mm-hmm. little bit, and you know, I'm, here I am. I'm you know, I was a kid educated in the in the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. You know, things I most certainly didn't know about, and I would think that I speak for a, a large amount of people who mm-hmm. find that same thing. What, it, again, you're talking about the greatness mm-hmm. that is lost, has been lost to history. Oh, Expand yeah. on it a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the things that the Ghanaian and the Twi language people of, of Ghana, uh, of West Africa, also uh, gifted us with are proverbs and through the Adinkra symbols and teachings. Um, and so we get to learn a lot about the thinking of our ancestors, uh, historical thinking all the way in Africa through uh, what we call affirmations through the Adinkra symbols of West Africa. And so you will see, uh, for example, when you see um, the Swahili word, umoja, unity, right? And um, you will also, uh, so there's, there's hundreds of these symbols that basically teach uh, citizenship, democracy, love, affection, uh, family, community. Uh, you will see um, in these... And a here, culture that goes historically back before what we saw in 1776 in, in America, correct? Oh, oh, eons back. Yes. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and that's why I said it's such a gift to the present because we know that as early as the 13 and 1400s, the Ghanaian culture, okay, created a dinkra fabric with symbols to teach us, to teach us about, you know, as I stated, family and community and love, um, um, uh, like akoma means love, and it has a whole pre- pre- definition around it, you know, amari, strength. And why? And what does it mean to be strong? Um, these these words and these symbols um, also teach. You know, they 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 go back quite quite extensively before 1776 and before any invasion or conquering of African uh, uh, the the Ghanaian shores of West Africa. So so there's a lot to learn. 
Um, and, and we do have that as a gift. And I actually, um, we, in our My Brother's Caper program, um, the Mel Academy program, we actually teach those symbols and those affirmations at every session that we come into so that they can know their, their connection, their lineage to their West African history and culture, but also how to, how to be a, a great young man. And, and those symbols can be found around the city. Um, yeah. I believe they are uh, on the Kensington and they are on the new uh, tops on Jefferson Avenue. Mm -hmm. um, thanks to the, uh, thanks to Kat Massey, who unfortunately lost her life uh, in the in that Jefferson shooting. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask yes. you, uh, Dr. Morell, why do you think th these topics are these topics being learned through the emancipation curriculum were, were previously overlooked. I think I heard someone say recently, I never liked Pearson to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so books are a business like most anything else. And um, so what are we doing? We are appealing to those who have the power, the cultural capital and economic power to purchase our books. And so I'm not going to tell. I'm going to tell a story that that fits into a narrative that allows us all comfort in our racism. OK. And so therefore, I'm not going to center a story on um, Fort 10 or a story, you know, around Ralph Bunch or Megger Evers. I'm not going to center those stories. I'm going to center stories around Christopher Columbus, Conquering America. Um, I even saw in one book it said uh, the, the, uh, the Africans were invited to come work in the fields of the... Like, oh. I mean, this is horrendous history. And so what, hap so what happens with that, and you get young folks, and, and we listened to them too when we started to write the Emancipation Curriculum. We had an urban forum in 2016, and young people came out and told us how they felt about the curriculum. And they said, I don't know who, who I am. I don't know. Like, all I know is we were slaves. Uh, Harriet Tubman helped save some of us. Rosa Parks stood up on the bus, sat on the bus, and um, Martin Luther King had a dream. That's, that was it. And there's so much more. And I think these textbook companies realize you can't talk about the greatness of black people and for, uh, you know, because that's going to problematize, which it has already done. As you can see, whenever you talk about the greatness of, of, of people of color, people get so scared and it just problematizes everything for them. They won't buy the books if we talk nicely, if we speak the truth, if we give historical facts and truth about the stories of marginalized uh, people of color and, and, and even our Jewish peoples. They don't tell the whole story. I was just watching on CNN the other night. Uh, th that story has never been told that way with the crematoriums and, 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 and things of that nature. It's never been dealt with effectively and accurately because we we have some kind of shame in America. Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about this deeply. And we, we don't want our shame, which is the sin of slavery, to be the forefront of anyone's minds ever because then we can't continue on with some of the... Um, 
degrading and domineering and 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 just uh, suppressive ways that we treat people. And so if we tell that we humanize them and make them human, then it's harder for us to just to, to look the other way when we see, uh, you know, shootings of, of unarmed black and brown men, women and children. And it's, you know, we can just keep going on because we haven't really humanized them in any of our textbooks. There's not been a story of their true humanity. So therefore, it's easier to do things like, you know, uh, criminalize them in the schools, right? And create that school to prison pipeline and shoot them when they're unarmed and, you know, make up lies and stories that aren't true to perpetuate racial stereotypes that just aren't true, but but provides for some, not for all, but for some, a level of comfort of living in their own, their own um, ignorant bliss, it mm. is. And so trying to remove that ignorance from people uh, has gotten them worked up. Would you say that? Worked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. We now have nine states with legislation um, that is uh, limiting free speech, if not totally eradicating it, in 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 their schools. Um, there are nine and, and many others with this legislation on the books. And what they've done is they've called it all critical race theory. And that's a buzzword that uh, we want to associate and make a, have a negative connotation uh, that is uh, assigned to it um, so that we can brand anything that uh, discusses race, uh, misogyny, culture, LGBTQ, uh, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, any of that. We're going to brand it negatively with this flag of CRT. And then that way, uh, everyone will be afraid of CRT and anything associated with it. And then they can't teach any of this stuff to our children in schools because you're teaching our white children to hate themselves. That's what you're doing. So erroneous. So I would take CRT separately because the first thing I want to say is that 95% of our schools don't even teach it. Right? And if you listen to Ibram X. Kendi, even in the law schools where it was created in the 70s, they have a tough time even teaching it. Our teachers don't even really have access to the knowledge base to know how to teach critical race theory. Like, that's, that's a hard lens for teachers to overlay on education. And so there's so many erroneous miscommunications, uh, uh, fake news related to Emancipatory curriculum, the 1619 Project, it's really, really a lot of uh, just uh, misnomers and fake news to per perpetuate this idea of we don't want to have any conversations about uh, racial equality or even conversations about slavery in, in the schools, period. Now, I'm not going to bastardize CRT because it has its place, right? But just to be clear, that's not what... You, your school district is teaching, and it's it's something totally different. It is, it is something that is um, total totally different from what we are actually doing. But I don't want to get off on, you know, saying that those law students that are discussing CRT are are wrong and shouldn't be doing that. It has its place, and I think it belongs there at the university, and they can continue to have those discussions. But to try and broad stroke. CRT onto every single district, and especially my district, mm. okay, 
<laughs> we gonna have a problem not my dish. so that so that is a problem but we gotta understand where it's coming from because now you have folks on the house floor very conservative i'm sorry for those conservatives it's not a plug it's not a punch it's just the truth very conservative ideas about what should and should not be taught in schools and not i don't think anyone's realizing that do you realize you are debilitating our first amendment right to free speech and free thinking and also too can we really have a look at what's really being taught because when we say when we when we say you know that uh you know the the American economy was built on the backs of enslaved Africans through the cotton fields, connected to the banking systems, connected to chattel slavery and property, people as property. And you can't, we can't agree on that. There's a, we should have, be able to have a discussion because I fundamentally believe that we are the greatest nation in the, in the, in the world. But there's a reason why we are. And it begins with the with the with the um, initial founding that we don't get any credit for. We keep forgetting about the white lion. We only think, want to talk about the Mayflower. We got to remember the others. That's us who contributed deeply in the background to the success of this country. And not once have we received any kind of not and, and I'm not going to have a reparations conversation, but we don't even get recognition like for anything that we submitted or created, you know, and, and that is very disheartening. What's been the uh, reaction in the classroom from from the kids? Uh, maybe it's to start with the, the young kids uh, to start things off here. Well, you know, this year we're implementing our rising voices. Um uh, uh, literature program. Every every elementary K to five classroom will have one a library full of one hundred books where girls in STEM and males of color, uh, particularly uh, black and brown, um, Latin Latinx and um, African American boys, are centered as protagonists in the books. And so we're very very proud of that. That is coming in anew. But what we have seen. Oh, my gosh. When the young folks are given books about themselves, they read avidly. They want to wow. read. And then that is projected. I just we just had a three a three day administrator institute in the Buffalo Public Schools uh, called Destination Equity. Where we really delve deeply into uh, we had to do some of that racial healing and trauma based on the May 14th uh massacre, uh, horrific massacre in my community. But um, we we also had opportunity to talk deeply about culturally responsive practices and literature and literacy. And we had a few students come forward who have been participating in the programs of the Buffalo Public Schools that heavily focus in on culturally responsive practices using literature as the center for the program. Amazing young people. I had a a seven-year-old reading a book like she was about 20 years old. I mean, it was when we unlock literacy for them and unlock like their greatness, you will see our students soar. And that's what we plan to do and continue to push and do. So it's really the kids are 
they're loving it. They want more of it. And even more importantly, the parents are asking for it, right? And want want more of, of, you know, the literature, the opportunities to elevate their voices, the opportunities to hear the real stories. And so, yeah, we're having our MBK fellows that come up to the board meetings and they speak like young men, right? And they're only 16. <laughs> they, it's so such a difference when you see that they've been educated using these resources as opposed to when they're not. And it's just been amazing. And this is what uh, I've had several conversations with um, some college professors, and they talk about Toni Morrison's avoiding the white gaze, not centering whiteness in the education of people of color, centering, centering the people of color in the stories. And as you said, that's unlocking uh, the potential of these students in the BPS. Now, your work obviously has gotten national recognition. Do you see, do you see this work getting farmed out to other local districts, other school districts within the state, other school districts across the country? Yes. Um, so let me just go back to your Toni Morrison statement because yes. there there is a place for white literature. That's oh yeah. Re- created, written. I love you know I I uh, and um, Anne Frank. We're doing a, this entire uh, Anne Frank uh, project starting at about five of our schools. Um, I love um, you know the works by Heming- Hemingway. I love the works. Uh, there's, 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 uh, you know, Helen Keller, that whole piece that our students read. There's a lot, there's a great space and place for our, uh, our, our uh, predominantly white authors to be centered as well. My thing is that not exclusive, you know, not exclusively. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just want to make that clear because I don't want our kids to stop reading Shakespeare. Okay. <laughs> sure. All but, right. but the point is, <laughs> you know, getting story, I mean, Hemingway's stories were nice, but they were focused on a white protagonist and and, and again these are images that uh, black kids weren't seeing weren't reading nor were white students absolutely absolutely so i just wanted to make that clear yes now i'm sorry what was your question again oh um do you see your work the the uh emancipation curriculum do you see that moving forward into other local school districts maybe other school districts across the state and then school districts across the country well so first of all thank you that's a great question first of all our uh the CLRI high leverage strategies of the Buffalo Public Schools are the centerpiece of the New York State Education Department's uh, culturally responsive sustaining education framework. I was on the advisory panel for that uh, particular initiative a few years ago with Angelica Anfante. And, um, um, and so already New York State um, is uh, required to implement Buffalo's principles. They came from our district. And so we already are seeing an expansion of culturally responsive practices across uh, uh, the state using the principles out of the Buffalo Public Schools. Um, secondly, upcoming on September 22nd, I am working with um, um, the Office of CLRI to bring forth a webinar, a state webinar. I'm working with 
the New York State Education Department has engaged myself and my office to create a webinar that discusses culturally responsive sustaining education, the emancipation curriculum, ongoing professional development, all those principles that we created in Buffalo. They want us to go deeper with that, and they're going to put that out to the entire state. This is what uh, we're kind of looking for. But I also, you know, I do get requests from other districts just asking for um um, and a lot of doctoral students. So it's very encouraging because it's like the young ones are coming up and they want to do this and they want to do it full throttle. And um, I get a lot of requests for, you know, information. Can you offer uh, a training? Can you come in and speak? Uh, I'm going somewhere in Florida, RTM in October uh, with uh, about 85 superintendents uh, to speak to them about DEI. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. RTM is the name of the company, but I don't know what it stands for, right? I can't, it slips my mind. Um, I'll be there. And so, you know, the, it is expanding and more and more people uh, really understand that there is an inequality, not only in education, but in other institutions, the banking institutions, the housing institutions. There, there are so many, you know, rampant and um, just overt inequalities that people want to change. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so sorry for um, the you know, the dehumanization of George Floyd. But in my eyes, I don't think it started to shift in this way until that moment. Unfortunately, I think that is true. We can pick up on that after we take a a short break here. Mm -hmm. This is Buffalo What's Next. Dr. Fatima Morrell from Buffalo Public Schools with us. We'll be right back. This is WBFO. Support for the WBFO Mental Health Initiative is provided by the Patrick P. Lee Foundation a private family foundation focused on two key investment areas, mental health and education. The Lee Foundation is committed to supporting a community that is well-informed about mental health, inclusive of individuals with mental illness, and served by high-quality, accessible mental health services. Learn more at lee.foundation. WBFO is your home for trusted news about your community. And WBFO The Bridge connects music and community. Hear local music from bands like Farrell from Buffalo, Tedesco Knows Best from Niagara Falls, and Stress Dolls from Buffalo every day on WBFO The Bridge. Listen at WBFO 88.7 HD2 or WNED 94.5 HD2 or stream it from WBFOTheBridge.org or the WBFO The Bridge mobile app. This is Buffalo What's Next where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And back on Buffalo, what's next? Our guest from the Buffalo Public School District, the Associate Superintendent of Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Initiatives, Dr. Fatima Morell. Um, Dr. Morell, you going into the break, you mentioned George Floyd. I want to get into that because one thing I, I'll just uh, pass along here, we do remember the summer of 2020, protests at Niagara Square. Thomas O'Neill White was covering it for us here at uh, WBFO. He was among those who uh, was pepper sprayed. Uh, during oh, that yes. as well, yes. Yeah, so I got a little pepper spray. Yes, um, uh, but uh, just wanted to bring that up in the sense that almost kind of uh, two years ago now with May 14th that happened here in Buffalo, it almost seems so long ago, but what, as you can reflect, struck not just you, but the society in general about the George Floyd incident that seemed to spark 
so much conversation and, and obviously protest as well. Well, actually, it was it was it was kind of like the perfect storm. You had everyone at home. Life had slowed down. Everyone could watch TV and lit and and delve into social media ad infinitum, and that was kind of our way of staying in touch with people because we were isolated in our homes. And then you saw, because now everyone's able to watch, and you saw this despicable dehumanization of a man a black man with the knee of a police officer on his neck for nine minutes. And you saw him holler for his mom. And it just, any mother in America had to feel that pain. And it just, it, it just took your heart and it just crunched it. And it, it made, I, I, you could only weep. But to see the, there had always been, you know, we, we had a lot before that. We'd had Trayvon Martin was horrendous. Michael Brown was horrendous. Sandra Bland was horrendous. They were all horrendous. But we had to slow down and watch it because we're at home, I think. That's what it was. And, and people just did not want to be associated, no matter who you were, black, white, woman, man, whatever. You didn't want to be associated with someone executing a public lynching on a body, on a, on a, on a, on a black man, right? It could have been any colored man. It, it just, it was a human. And to take that deep, to take that humanity from him in that public way, and to hear his cries, those cries to me were cries for freedom. Those cries to me were cries of our ancestors. Those cries, it told me, you got to do more than talk about changing the culture of our classrooms. You have to do more. It made me think like that. So when the teachers and administrators came out, they felt the same way. We all, no one could deny it anymore. We all could see that this was clearly an act of dehumanization. There's no other word. Like he was more seen more of as an animal than he was a man. And no one wanted to be connected to that. And it just hurt our hearts. It broke us. It broke our hearts. Um, you know, the massacre at Tops really hurt also. And, and and especially because some of them, I, I like, I knew Cat Macy and, you know, but, but that, and, and, and you can't compare the pains, right? Because it's pain in both. But I think what, what struck the chord with the George Floyd piece was that it was so long. It was like nine minutes. It was just so long, so agonizing. And it just made people want to stand up and do something. And that's where, and so when our teachers and administrators, when they start talking, the talk, and they went out there and protested on the steps of City Hall that they wanted equity, equality, Black Lives Matter, they wanted change, they wanted, that was my key, or a, a really, uh, you know, that was my, um, my purpose. They set a purpose for me. 
to get to to make it better to to educate and to bring equality and freedom to our classrooms and that's what i've really been trying to do through the emancipation curriculum and other initiatives and how do you how do you reach those people who maybe are still still maybe your detractors or people who are on the fence um how do you reach them and 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 get them to understand the importance of the emancipation curriculum or as my mom likes to likes to say you're, you're not on that committee <laughs> first thing i have to dispel the notion that we're teaching anything about hating white children or hating white people it's just absolutely erroneous false and only serves a certain narrative to 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 drive us and, and divide us apart to put a wedge between us and and I would just like to publicly say hey do we know that white teachers are writing the emancipation curriculum I don't think they're gonna write things that indicate that they hate themselves <laughs> at all <laughs> um, so I want to dispel that notion for those who are still I think confused for those on the fence I want to say I like divergent thinking I like divergent ideas. Let's have a let's have a conversation. Okay? Those are the ones I love the most because uh they actually make me think about my work and um make me uh, make shifts in and what I'm doing if I if I think, hey, well that's a sometimes I get brilliant ideas from those who have divergent views. But what I'm not going to do is stop having an opportunity to train our children to love themselves through the curriculum because you are some kind of way problematized you know, by, by that. But if you want to have a conversation, I want, I want you on my team and let's talk. Maybe there are some things I can tweak. Right. But then I also want to, I want to uh, have a, a sentient conversation so that maybe I can help you to understand who I am and where we are from and, and, and what we believe to be right. And once you start the conversation, the dialogue is always magical when you have people that have multiple perspectives because guess what? That's what our country is built upon, multiple perspectives and voices and ideas. And so I don't shoot down anyone's ideas. I've come in, I've had people write something negative, you know, uh, racist comments. Um, you know, I think I was called a coon once in a, in a training on a, they wrote it on a, on a, this labeling activity and uh, you know, everyone around me was getting all upset and doing all this. And I was just as calm as I could be because you know why you got a right to think that way. And it's my job to change you. It's my job to change you. And so that's why I say divergent views and ideas. Let's do it. You talk about your team um, and everybody contributing. While we've been on the air here, your phone has been uh, been vibrating nonstop, <laughs> and they've got some of your team suggesting books uh, that yeah. uh, we should maybe pass along to our audience as well. I mean, do, uh, uh, can you yeah. rip, rip through all those uh, those those texts here that you've been receiving throughout this hour? Well, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I I, I want to just um, please offer a few uh, books that we are implementing in the Buffalo Public Schools new this fall through our Rising Voices uh, compendium of resources and lessons and books. And so for our kindergarten, I'll just do a two or three out of each. So for our kindergarten, we are looking at uh, uh, One is a Pinata, a book of numbers by Roseanne Greenfield Thong, illustrated by John Potter. Okay. Up to My Knees by Grace Lynn. 
Okay. Uh, Sing Don't Cry by Angel Dominguez. Uh, we also have um, Hey Black Child <laughs> by Usaini Eugene Perkins and illustrated by Brian Collier. At first grade, we have uh, Yasmin the Builder. Focus on STEM for girls. <laughs> Focus on STEM for girls. And when when Julia danced bomba, cuando Julia palaba bomba, okay, bringing in our Latinx girl voices, it's a girl thing. Smart, fierce, and leading the way by uh, Pre Ferrari uh, and um, My People by Langston Hughes. Uh, we have uh, a dance like Star Starlight by Christy Dempsey. That's a great, great two. And Radiant Child by Jane, J- John Michael Basquiat. I just learned mm. about Basquiat. So there's a quite a few, and you can go on our uh, website uh, to read more. Oh, let me read this one. Um, when Marianne sang the song of Marian Anderson at the uh, Lincoln Memorial when she was denied access to uh, sing with the daughters of the... Uh, American Revolution at Constitutional Hall. The great, great five read. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't think that list was going to be that long, but that's pretty impressive. And uh, <laughs> you got a nice team there. And thank, to, thank for them you. to listen. I'm thank going to you. ask you one more question. We've got about a couple of minutes left. And this comes, okay. I'm going to steal this right from that Time Magazine uh, article from the reporter. So I'll give credit in that regard. And I'm going to say, for what um, would be different if all students had access to a curriculum like the emancipation curriculum? Well, if all students had access to this wonderful uh, uh, curriculum that edifies the voices of our, uh, you know, Latinx, African-American, New American, Asian, indigenous, uh, history and culture, um, it it not only will elevate their understanding and knowledge of, of true history, right, and of their own connectedness with American history and culture and their own connectedness with, uh, you know, the diaspora, the African diaspora, the Puerto Rican diaspora, uh, and so on, and the native, you know, the indigenous people, you know, their connection to their own lands and and, and telling their true stories and why they, you know, I think an amazing uh, story that I learned uh, three years ago, which was way too late, was about the boarding schools of the indigenous people um, and just how horrendous that was taking children away from their parents and then all kinds of horrific things happening to them under the guise of education. But I think when our children know their true struggle and they know their true, the true history of who they are, that emancipates them to do better, to do greater, to be, to be, to be great. When other children see black and brown children in the books and their voices elevated, they have a deeper respect And they grow up having that respect for who they are as human beings and contributors. And they can no way put their knee on a black person's neck, right? Because you know their humanity. Additionally, when our kids are emancipated through knowing about 
who they are, but also knowing about other marginalized groups like our LGBTQ community, you know, and, you know, our 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 Jewish community and knowing about all those others. It makes them globally competent citizens that can navigate themselves in any culture and any any space that they find themselves in. They don't have to learn for the very first time. This is the first time I'm knowing about, you know, the boarding schools. So, Doctor, so that's it. That's it. Dr. Fatima Morale. Thank you very much. We look forward to getting a, get an update as we move forward. Dr. Fatima Morella of the Buffalo Public Schools. Thomas Thank O'Neill you. White. Thanks, Jake. With us. And this, of course, is Buffalo What's Next. We'll be back with you tomorrow on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean and WUBJ Jamestown.